Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Talent ID Officer at Aspire Academy, Chris Bradner. Hi guys, welcome to episode 39 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have Chris Bradner on the phone. So a really kind of focused episode today. Um, So we discuss Chris's PhD that he's currently doing in blood flow restriction exercise, which is really interesting. And we go into a lot of detail with regards to kind of what he's found and what what he wants to find and the direction things are going with his PhD. We also discussed the Aspire Academy itself and his job as a talent ID officer, which is really, really interesting. Uh, we also talk about working in the Middle East as a whole uh, and the kind of the challenges that brings. So just before we get on to the chat with Chris, I uh, just want to say if you do want to check out all the previous episodes of the podcast, you can check them out at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. You can also check out all the links that I've mentioned in the episode that me and Chris mentioned uh, at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 39. If you do want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at paceyperform and all the new episodes will go out there first. So uh, that's it. That's a great place to follow what's going on in the podcast. So hope you enjoy the episode and here is the chat with Chris Bradner. Hi guys, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I've got Chris Bradner on the line. So just before I introduce Chris, I just want to ask him to uh, give us a little bit of uh, information on his experience, his education is what I, and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I guess in terms of my background, uh, I, I'm from Australia, from Melbourne. I uh, went through an exercise science degree at Victoria University and then crossed over to, to Deakin University to do an honours um, a year, which is like a one-year research intensive year. And um, you know, I was working as a strength and conditioning coach at the time and I thought, you know, if I wanted to work in high performance sport, I needed to continue that education. So I got the marks to, to continue on and do my PhD and that sort of uh, snowballed over the last four years. and. Uh, I was doing my PhD in blood flow restriction training, which I'm sure we'll have a bit of a talk about today. And um, now, currently, I'm working at uh, Aspire Academy, uh, which is in Qatar, um, so sports science facility in Qatar. Cool. So what are you doing out there? What's your so role I, work there? In, I work in the sports science department uh, in the Olympic sports in talent de- uh, development and identification. So I know this... Um when I sent you the questions over, we'd kind of come to this later, but it seems like a quite a nice uh, time to actually discuss Aspire itself. So yeah, why sure. is, what's it like to be out there and what kind of facilities are we talking about? What kind of athletes are we talking about out there? It's, uh, it's great. It's, um, it's the first national institute that I've really, really worked in. Like I've worked in professional sports back home, but this is, this is something out of this world, really. Um, I've been here for, for six months and, and loving the work here and loving the lifestyle here. And uh, I've got a blog post up on a personal blog site and I put up all these photos of the academy. But imagine, imagine a dome that's the size of, I don't know, 
10, 10 football ovals or something like that. And, and within this dome, air-conditioned facilities because, you know, the heat here in summer gets to 50 degrees. So everything needs to be indoors and air-conditioned. And, and you've got a full-size soccer pitch. You've got a, a full-size uh, indoor athletics track. You've got up to, I think, seven strength and conditioning gyms. You've got multi-sport purpose areas for basketball and netball facilities. Uh, there's a 50-metre lap pool as well as a diving area, uh, squash courts, table tennis areas, one of only like five to ten football noughts in the world in our facilities as well. So it's, it's absolutely massive. And then on top of that, you know, that's just the, the sports and the sports science. There's, there's also a school a part of this as well. So we've got 200 student athletes that, that come to the school and live on the school campus um, and obviously administration and sports science officers as well. So just to, just to keep going, on our, outside of that, we have like 14 soccer pitches that, that are within our facilities as well. So <laughs> it's, it's ginormous. It's, it's nothing that I've ever seen before and I've, I don't think there is anything out there like this. Uh, struggling for cash then. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the, the athletes that you're dealing with, are they in the school or are they coming in externally? Uh, the majority of our athletes are in the school. So they're, they're, they, they come to the school from year, from year seven up to year 12. Um, we, have, we do have a junior development program where they, they don't come to school but, but come for some training in, in the primary school age years. But it's, it's mainly for high school age kids. Um, we service football. Football is obviously one of our big sports. And with uh, Qatar 2022 World Cup, that's of, of high importance for the academy. Um, but I work in the, the sports science department in the Olympic-based sports. So the other sports that we sort of focus on are uh, table tennis, squash, track and field athletics, obviously. Um, we have some swimmers, some fencers, some, some gymnasts and things like that. So it's... it's quite diverse and uh, you know we're talking boys that are starting at 11 years old up until you know they're turning 18 and they're, they're ready to leave the academy. So with all the money that's been put in what kind of expectations are you know have been put on you guys as staff um, leading up to 2022? Uh, so we're lucky enough, I guess, in that a few years ago, they, they, were, they split the sports science department. So there's, we now have two sports science departments. One is based in the Olympic-based sports, one's in, uh, in football. So I'm in the Olympic-based sports, so I'm, I'm not too, too well into the goings-on of the, what happens in football, but a lot of the focus is on football. I think, obviously, as well, we've got the, the under-19 and under-20 teams, under-21 teams that they're, they're trying to, to build uh, they want Qatar as a nation to perform well in these competitions leading up to 2022. You've got a lot of money and funding being put into stadiums that are being built. So it, it's a, of high importance over here. Well, we'll move on as in um, we'll talk about the blood flow restriction training that you um, that did your PhD in or currently doing your PhD in. So do you just want to give us a bit of a history um, around blood flow restriction training and what it is and... Bit of, a, bit of an overview. Yep. So blood flow restriction training uh, or BFR or, or some people call it vascular occlusion training and in Japan it's known as Katsu training and that's where it was first developed um, in the 1960s. So uh, a guy called um, Yoshiaki Sato, I really like this story and if you YouTube it as well you can find this story and, and 
and how it came about was he was meditating and he was meditating for a number of hours. He was, he was in a, a kneeling type position and he noticed that, you know, over the first few hours he was okay, but coming towards the end of this, the, this prayer session or meditation session, his, his legs started to go numb. And when he, when he got up and he, he tried to walk around and massage it, he sort of clicked and he, he noticed that the same feeling that he was feeling then was like the muscle pump feeling after doing, doing calf raises. And from that, he started experimenting with bike tires and things like that to try and get this restriction or occlusion uh, happening. Um, and throughout the years, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, he developed this technique a little bit more, a, a commercially available device. Um, was was happening in Japan, and uh, the first sort of English-based scientific paper was was um, produced in 1998, I think. So it's come a long way over the last 15 years. So it's it's relatively new, um, but I think but I think it's it's obviously gaining a lot of attention. I hear a lot of podcasts, I see a lot of websites, a lot of scientific literature now uh, on blood flow restriction and how to increase muscle size and strength without having to lift loads because that's what it's really about. It's about applying a cuff to the most proximal portion of the arm or the leg, uh, an inflatable cuff, uh, restricting arterial blood flow into the muscle and, and fully occluding venous outflow uh, from the muscle and exercising with light loads. And the loads we're talking about are 20 to 30% of a participant's one repetition maximum. And what a lot of studies have found is that when you train with light loads with the cuffs, you see significant gains in muscle strength and muscle size. And this is mostly, most of the time, this is a lot better than exercising uh, with light loads without the cuffs. And uh, in, in a lot of instances as well, it's just as good as exercising with heavy resistance loads as well. So is this, um, I mean, I got to know, I, I, went, I went to like a little seminar um, probably in 2012, the English Institute of Sport down in Derby, uh, and there was a guy ben, who was Ben Rosenblatt. No, it was. Um, it, I think it was a it was a student. Um, okay. Who was who was doing some research? I think, um, and it was it was kind of brought about as this brilliant thing that had been the kind of a secret weapon in <laughs> the last you know Olympic cycle or something. So when yeah. when is this? Although you said the, the research has been kind of um, English published research in 1998. Did you say? Yep. Yeah. So when has this been actually used in, in professional sport? Um, so I think the first paper published in, in athletes was, was around early 2000s. Uh, again, in Japan, a lot of this research originated in Japan. That's where the technique has come from. So that's where a lot of the early research has come from as well. Um, but even now, we're seeing a lot of papers. Uh, Brendan Scott and, and Jeremy Lenecki have put out a really nice review about BFR in athletic populations. And I think from the literature, there's about 10 to 15 publications out there in, in highly trained athletes from a, a vast range of sports like rugby, netball, swimming as well, uh, and not resistance training with swimmers. We're talking about uh, aqua cuffs that you apply during the arms and legs during, during swim training as well. So, you know, innovative technologies that are being put out there through America and Japan um, are starting to develop. So, so how has it been used actually in the field? Is it been used for um, kind of um, rehab or is it actually, you know, training itself or is it a bit of both or where are people going with it? 
Yeah, so um, myself and, and Stephen Patterson uh, from St. Mary's uh, University have put out a, um, um, a research paper recently or a research questionnaire, I should say. It's not up to the, the written stages yet. And we wanted to know these questions. We wanted to know who's, who's using it, how many people have heard of it, and, and if they have heard of it, from that population, are they using it or not? And, and from the respondents we got, about 250 respondents, only half were actually using it in the field. Some of those were, were in research, but, but some as well were from elite national academies, elite national squads, um, and the vast majority, I think almost 50% are using it mainly for, for rehab purposes or to induce significant gains in, in muscle hypertrophy as well. Um, so I think personally, I, I really believe that if your athlete is, a, is, is free to lift heavy weights, that that is still going to be the, the biggest and best thing that they can do. But on the other hand, if you've got an injured athlete or you've got patients who cannot lift heavy weights at all, like the elderly or, or other clinical populations, then lifting light loads with blood flow restriction is, is going to be a technique that, that might help speed up the recovery processes, that might help avoid losses in muscle, muscle strength and, and muscle mass. So I, I really think there's, there's something in it and we just need more, more evidence available. So, so a lot more people become aware of the technique how to do it, um, how to apply it safely and, and what the benefits are going to be in, in these populations as well because a lot of the literature that comes out is in healthy uh, young populations and slowly, slowly it's, it's starting to get more, more clinical rehab as well, which is good, I think. Mm -hmm. Stephen's actually one of my uh, lecturers at St Mary's. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. S small world. Exactly, yeah. So how, how did, what's the link between you, you two? Uh, we met... Uh, last year at uh, ECSS conference in Amsterdam, actually, and we had been in contact over email and stuff because he had, he had just recently completed his PhD in blood flow restriction, looking at uh, vascular function, and I was sort of just starting or through the through the middle stage of my PhD, and just wanted to ask a few questions. So that's that's how that link sort of appeared. Cool. So what else are you wanting to gain from this questionnaire, apart um, from you know who's using it and what you're doing? Yeah, well, that's that's the big thing. We want to know why why are people using it, or why aren't they using it? Are there any barriers to, to using this type of exercise? And I'm sure there are. There's there's probably populations out there that, that shouldn't be using this technique. You know, those with already compromised cardiovascular function, for example. I mean, it, it might be safe, but we don't know. So let's let's not risk it at this stage. Um, but but I, I've spoken to a few other people through America and, and even here at, in, uh, in Qatar at Aspatar Sports Medicine Hospital that are doing clinical trials with this stuff now, looking at uh, injuries or post-surgical post procedures and, and trying to speed up that, that muscle strength, muscle, uh, muscle mass um, gains as well following surgery. So uh, I, I, that's, that's the direction I think this, this type of stuff should be going is more clinical-based. So just before anyone runs out and gets a, um, in a tube of a bike and wraps it on the leg, what kind yeah, of pressure? Yeah, what kind of <laughs> pressures are we looking at um, that's kind of um, got a decent amount of research behind it? Yeah. Um, from this questionnaire, we, we asked that as well. We, we asked, what pressures are you guys using? And the, the most common was about 100 to 150 millimeters of mercury. And, and, that, and that's fine, but what it, what's interesting about that is that the same pressures were being used for, for the arms and for the legs. The same pressures were being used for the, same, for the same cuffs. So if you have a narrow cuff, 
you have to use higher restriction pressures than, than using a wider cuff. Uh, if, you, if you use a very high pressure with wide cuffs, it's going to be very painful. The athlete or the, the patient isn't going to be able to complete their exercise bout. So you use much lower pressures. So w w there's, there's a few papers now that have put out these recommendations, how to, how to sort of pick the correct uh, cuff pressure. And um, Jeremy Lenecki is, is leading this, this field in America, and, and the guy's a freak because during his PhD, he put out about 100 research articles on blood flow restriction, and I reckon I'll be lucky to get two out. So he, he's done an amazing job. And uh, a lot of his research says that, that you can, uh, if you measure the participant's thigh circumference, or you can use um, uh, a, a te technique called uh, limb occlusion pressure as well, where you can see what's the maximal pressure that's needed to, to fully occlude blood flow. And if that's, if that's 100 or 200 or 300 for that individual, that's the maximal pressure that, that's going to be used to occlude blood flow. You want to use about 50, 60, 70% of that pressure during exercise. So again, that's a, that's a sort of wide recommendation, but maybe you start with 50% with your athlete or client, and if they can get through the exercise bout and it's not too painful and it's not inducing any type of muscle soreness or pain, maybe the next session you could increase that, that um, restriction pressure. But it's a good question because we're not, we're not exactly sure what, what the right pressure is, but it should, it should be individualized for each, each athlete or client. So what's the process of actually identifying that um, individualization? So, uh, Yep, yep. So back, back at uh, university, we had a device called a Zimmer automatic tourniquet system. And it, and it was good because you could, you could place a, a sensor on the finger or the, or the toe and the, the machine would, would automatically inflate the cuff and the, the, the sensor would detect um, when blood flow stopped. So that, that was easy for us, you know, to measure limb occlusion pressure and, and, and get, that, get that right um, percentage of what we should be during, used during exercise. So 60% worked for us. Other studies have used a little bit lower. Um, some studies estimate the, the restriction pressure during exercise based off systolic blood pressure, which is okay for upper body exercise, but maybe if you're going to do lower body exercise, you, you, you can't use that. Um, and uh, using the thigh circumference, so the, the field method. If you measure the, the size of um, the thigh, or the mid-thigh, uh, Jeremy Lenecki's put out some recommendations to say that if your thigh is between X and Y, you should be using this pressure so okay so should anybody anyone be going out and using this is it you know what are the kind of risks for people um out in the field thinking i might give this a go i think i think the recommendation is if if you know nothing about it don't try it unless unless you have read the material and what you need to do it, all of the research says that it's safe but it's safe in a, in a controlled manner by people who know what they're doing um so, so really, my recommendation would be, if you are going to go out and try it, don't put it on your athlete first. Make sure you try it on yourself first. That's probably always the best thing to do. But if you are going to use it with your athletes, maybe you have to come up with a, with a, a questionnaire, some type of medical questionnaire, to ask if, if there's any, any contraindicators to doing this type of exercise. Cool. So wh where do you see your own um, kind of research and future research going in this area? So at the minute, my PhD is uh, it's focused on the neuromuscular and the cardiovascular responses to, to exercise and also to training. Um, so some of the early papers, it, for BFR, 
within two weeks you can get significant increases in muscle size and that's by doing two sessions a day and, and everyone asks me how, how does this happen and, and there's a few mechanisms and maybe we can talk about them in a second but some of the papers early on didn't really say that there was increases in muscle strength and maybe that maybe that there weren't any neurological adaptations happening yet we know that if you apply the cuffs and you, and you put EMG on the muscle we get really really significant increases in motor unit activation and and that's a lot higher than what you would without the cuffs and it's also similar to lifting heavy loads as well so something's obviously happening happening within the central nervous system and that's one of the first things I measured uh, we use a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation to give the the motor cortex a bit of a zap and see if there's anything happening there and and what we've shown so far is that the, in an acute session for 60 minutes post exercise there's a an increase in, in cortical activation, um, which, which could be promising that if it happens after one session, perhaps after training, this is compounded and maybe we get these neurological adaptations and it's something that, that I'm analysing right now actually. Um, and the second aspect was the cardiovascular aspect. So if you, if you exercise with, uh, with the cuffs, with light loads, what, what happens to heart rate, the blood pressures, cardiac output and stroke volume? And a lot of studies, early on studies, have mainly compared BFR with light loads to, to non-BFR with light loads, which is great, but we didn't know how does this, what's the context in terms of the heavy load resistance exercise. So some of the research we've, we've shown so far is that if you exercise with heavy loads, you're going to get the highest increases in, in heart rate, in blood pressures, in cardiac output. If you exercise with light loads, you're going to get the lowest rise in those variables and if you exercise with blood flow restriction it's going to be somewhere in the middle of these two. So if you're going to judge it against heavy load resistance training maybe it's safer in that regard. I mean I didn't measure anything vascular wise but again the research says that in terms of the vascular system endothelial function and things like that that if it's, if it's done in a controlled manner and the pressures aren't too high and it's not sustained for long periods of time say over 20-30 minutes that the exercise is quite safe. So I think it can become a little bit more widely, widely available based on, based on the current literature. Mm -hmm. So what are the other potential mechanisms for why this is, why the things that you're seeing that are happening? With muscle hypertrophy? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the easy way to, for me to answer this is we don't really know, but that's, uh, but that's okay. Because some of the proposed mechanisms and things that have been shown is uh, increases in uh, growth hormone and, and IGF-1, uh, and we're talking about you know 290 times greater than than uh, resting values. And although it hasn't been compared directly in in uh, in the same study, the increases shown shown have been greater than uh, heavy load resistance exercise. So that that's one mechanism. We get with with the light loads, we get this increase in uh, fiber. Um, type 2 muscle fiber recruitment, which we, you don't see without the cuffs. So muscle fiber recruitment is another one. Um, you know, other, other factors that are involved in muscle hypertrophy, you know, the downstream metabolic uh, molecular pathways like mTOR has been shown to be significantly elevated. Um, so I think overall, you know, the mechanisms for muscle hypertrophy are going to be the same no matter what type of exercise you do. But the, the small factors that, that lead into those are going to be a little bit different because with BFR, you don't have that mechanical overload. You don't have those big heavy loads. So metabolic stress is, is probably one of the big factors that, that come from BFR exercise. Well, I know something's going to come to me as we go, um, as we move on to 
the talent ID part of your life. Yeah. Um, but so I'll write things down and we'll come back to it. Um, but for now, we'll just move on to your, like I say, your talent ID um, role at the minute at, at Aspire. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your current role um, and what it entails day to day? Yeah, sure. Um, it's, it's interesting in that in, in Qatar, sport, you know, it's a developing country for one and, and sport isn't, isn't probably the, the, the biggest thing a part of their life. Like in Australia, sport is a part of everybody's life. If you, if you had this institute in Australia, you'd have people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to try and get in. But, but in Qatar, the, the, the physical education in, in primary school and high school is, is, is not as developed as what it is in, in obviously in Australia, the UK and America. So what happens is when we get these kids that come in into the academy in year seven, we find that they're lacking fundamental movement skills. So think things in the S&C environment like squatting, hip hinging, lunging, pushing, pulling, we find that they're, they're behind the eight ball there. We find that with other fundamental skills like kicking, striking activities, throwing, catching, they haven't developed these skills and, and something's happening and we don't exactly know what but it's something in the primary school, in the PE system, that they're not developing sport and physical literacy like we would in our country. So that's one of the big things that, that I'm working on at the minute is that how can we improve physical literacy and, and uh, physical competence in, in these Qatari boys? Because we want them to, to have these skills so that when they come into the academy, they can start to specialise within a particular sport. And uh, what I would do on a day-to-day basis, the, the school starts, uh, the school year starts in September or October. Um, and for that first three months, we go out to every Qatari school in the, in the nation. So about, I think it's about 45 schools. And we test, it's about three, three and a half thousand boys. We do physical testing. So I'm talking 20 meter beep test, 40 meter shuttle run, vertical jumps, anthropometrics, medicine ball throws. We collect it on all of these boys. So that's, that's phase one. That's called our bronze testing. After that, um, we, we collect, say, the top 5 to 10% of those boys from that pool and invite them to come to silver testing uh, at the academy in about February of the school year. And, and what, the, what the silver-based testing is for is basically a validation of their bronze results. So when we go out to all of the schools, maybe they don't have enough room in their sports hall for us to do the beep test or the 40-meter sprint in there, so we have to do it outside in, in that, I guess, harsh environmental conditions. These kids rock up and, and they might be wearing their thobes, they might be wearing PE gear, they might not be running with shoes on, they might be running in their sandals. So the, the silver-based testing is, based, is a validation of what we've already co- collected in bronze. And, and from those results, again, top 5 to 10% of boys get voted back for a, a gold camp and in the gold camp, we forget about the, the physical physical side of things now because we've already selected the top 5-10% of boys in, in those areas. Now we're looking at skills, uh, skills like throwing and catching and, and how coachable are these boys. And, and it's because it's a sports school as well. It's obviously very important to get, to get kids who are you know, academically available to come to the school. Um, and ready to, to come into this type of environment too. So there's also psychological testing involved. So that's a, that's a two-day camp that we run towards uh, April. And then from, from that, all the coaches will gather, TID staff will gather as well, and we'll say, you know, 
let's let's start to nominate some of these boys based on their physical results, some of the, the things the coaches see, you know, bringing the coach's eye into play. And um, up to up to I think 30 boys uh, are typically nominated and then from there invitations get sent out and they come into the, the school year the next year. So that's 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 what I would do throughout a year looking at the, the identification part and in terms of the, the development part, I mean I'm just a, a service provider, we have some great coaches that are actually instilling the, these coaching sessions with the kids in grade 7 but as, as I sort of mentioned before is th these kids are lacking something in terms of um, their physical literacy. They might not be able to run properly or, or jump or, or catch or strike a ball or Certainly because football is important here, a lot of the kicking abilities we find are quite good. But a lot of the other things, they, they have low confidence. And, and what we want is not only to develop a, develop a really good athlete, but an overall athlete as well that's competent in all of these movements so that whatever they do in their life, whether it's leading on to elite, uh, elite success in sport after the academy or not, that they're, that they're going to have these skills uh, to, be able to, to be able to get out and be physically active for the rest of their lives. And, and what I think will happen, and I think a lot of us feel this at Aspire, is that we'll see a lot of benefit in, with the next generation because these kids that we're training now, they'll have their own kids and start instilling sport and physical activity in their lives. So the next crop of, crop of kids that come through are going to be exceptional. Mm -hmm. Not true. So what's happening to the the kind of 95% or 90% that don't get through the the bronze phase, who, who's kind of picking up that? Is that obviously out of the remit of the academy or is that picked up by other guys within the academy for the kind of developmental side of things? Um, that's a good question. We, You're right. It's it's almost like a, it's, it's a talent selection, almost deselection process. Um, the, the, the rest of the boys would, would just go back to their normal school environments some would be involved in sports already and in the sporting federations, in the sporting clubs. You, you can come into the academy as well at later years. So that we might have a kid who doesn't make it in gold camp, but after you know, a bit of growth and maturation over the next few years, he might be invited to come in in grade nine because he's competing at a really high level in his chosen sport, whatever that may be. So you're right, it's a, it's a good question and um, we, I guess we mainly focus on the boys who are coming in and we don't, as yet, we don't really have those pathways for, for the rest of the boys. But what, what I think, dreaming big, me and, me and a few of my colleagues would, would, would like to see the PE curriculum change throughout the whole of Qatar. Uh, and some of the research we, we get to do here over the next few years will be looking at differences between going to a, a Qatar-based school or an international school here in Qatar and what are the differences in PE and physical literacy and... Um, and their physical physical outcome measures like endurance and speed. What what does all that look like? And is it is it really? Are we do we need to change to change PE here? As we've got a few questions that we want to start answering. Yeah, I mean, we spoke before about the kind of the, the money side of things. So are, they, are these parents paying for their kids to come to the academy, or is it you know all, all paid for, for for the kids? No, I think I think. I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think it's free. I think all schooling in Qatar for, for Qatari children is free. Okay, cool. Yeah. I just thought the um, the kind of money side of things may may be um, one of the you know a reason why kids may may kind of push through or not. But obviously, that's great that they don't. Um, but 
you mentioned when we when we spoke before about Ramadan and how things yeah. your kind of working working week changes. So what's it like being kind of working in the Middle East, coming from obviously uh, Australia? I've I've only been here six months. I got here in November, and and so far so good. I I do love it here. I mean, obviously I miss home, I miss family and friends and and all that. But I, I reckon it's great. Um, the, the traffic's a little bit crazy and everyone complains about that. But besides that, I, I mean, the weather's always good thus far. I mean, I haven't lived through a summer yet and the average summer temperature here can get up to and even higher than 50 degrees. So from from what awesome. I'm told, it's basically going from a, a cold air-conditioned house into your air-conditioned car, into your air-conditioned work and then repeat. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't lived through that yet. And uh, same with Ramadan. I haven't lived through the Ramadan period yet. But but what happens is every every year now that the Ramadan period um, comes earlier on in the year, about ten to fifteen days, um, due to the due to the Saudi um, yearly calendar, it's shorter than our calendar. Um, so what what's happening right now in the academy is that the Ramadan is is going on during exam periods, and each year now it's going to be during the exam periods, and then eventually it's going to going to um, get in the way of maybe national, uh, you know, we've got Diamond League on this weekend. So if Ramadan's on during the Diamond League, what, what happens to the athletes who are competing at that? And the, the Qatar uh, national teams, how are they going to cope during national training and, and, and sessions over a weekend and that as well? So um, it's going to be interesting. You're right. Ramadan, Ramadan is going to add something different that, that I haven't lived through before. Our working days are from, from eight until two and you know, there's, there's things that as a Westerner who, who doesn't follow, follow the Islamic um, religion, things that we have to be very conscious of because we're living in their country and we're, we're obviously thankful for that. You know, there's rules like you, you have to cover up from, um, you know, wearing long sleeves and, and, and long pants as well during the Ramadan period, which, which isn't instilled outside of that period. Um, eating and drinking in public during, during Ramadan as well. So little things that you have to adjust uh, leaving your own country and coming to a new country. So it's going to be very interesting. Mm. So just last thing on, on the kind of Middle East, what's the, yep. what's the culture of the kids like and the parents compared to kind of what you, what you used to back home? It's a good question, but I haven't, I haven't been in those school systems for a very long time, so I constantly try and make these, um, make these comparisons. I mean, kids are going to be kids. You know, we, we work... Predominantly with boys uh, at the academy, we do have a, an aspire girls, but obviously because of because of cultural um, differences here, the men work with the, the men and the, the females work with the females. So so I don't I don't have anything to do with the girls in the academy, but uh, you know I work a lot with the, the year seven boys and they're just um, typical year seven boys, crazy year seven boys, want to always muck around and fight and. They're keen to learn, which is good. You know, we're teaching them sports uh, that they haven't ever heard of or seen before. We've just finished teaching them cricket, and a lot of them love playing cricket. And you know, a couple Aussies, a Kiwi, and uh, a guy from the UK teaching them that. You know, that nice. was that was that was awesome. So, I think it's good to, as any type of teacher or coach, S and C, whatever it is, to to watch boys come into an academy and develop. Um, I think it's think it's really cool seeing seeing them grow up in front of your eyes. No, I'm sure. No, it's cool. Well, like I said um, before, I've kept you for uh, well over half an hour, so I'll let you go. But thank you very much for your time, and um, especially the the chat on the um, blood flow restriction training was 
was brilliant because I don't think it's. I mean, I'm I'm just talking from a, a kind of simpleton like me, um, but it's uh, it's maybe not something that people know tons and tons about. So to get that from the from the horse's mouth was good. Um, so yeah, where can people find out your your work and social media and that type of thing? So I'm on Twitter, pretty heavy on Twitter. So uh, it's at Chris Bradner. So it's B R A N D N E R. And uh, if people want to shoot me, shoot me a tweet or something like that, happy to ask any questions. And from there, I can give out my email contact as well. Cool. And what was the, um, there was a couple of uh, researchers that you mentioned. Um, just want to mention them again, just so I can write them down and, and link to them on the, on the page. Yeah, sure. So uh, Dr. Jeremy Lenecki is uh, the, the world's leading blood flow restriction researcher, I would say. You know, he's got well over 100 publications in the area and he's got a team around him as well that he works pretty closely with. Um, Brendan Scott is a PhD uh, student in, uh, in Australia who's doing some good work in the area of hypoxic training. Not necessarily in uh, in blood flow restriction, but more in systemic hypoxia. But he, but he's published in the BFR area, uh, and uh, from from your current university, Dr. Stephen Patterson, who who's done BFR research uh, for his PhD, looking at vascular function. So cool. uh, those are those are some of the guys that uh, that you can put down for that. Yeah, definitely. I'll link to some of their um, their articles in the on the page, so people can grab that easy. So yeah, thanks for your time. Um, really appreciate you coming on and and uh, giving us your insight. And I will uh, I'll speak to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. See you later. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode thirty nine of the Pacey Performance Podcast. As I mentioned before, you can follow me on Twitter at Pacey Perform. You can also check out all the older episodes of the podcast at PaceyPerformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. And you can check out all the links that were mentioned in the episode at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 39. And I will speak to you in episode 40.